This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Advantage Inter in the Milan Derby Champions League semi-final. They blew their rivals away in the first 11 minutes. The ageless Edin Dzeko and the ageing Henrik Mkhitaryan with the goals as Inter were just better in every department. First to the ball, quicker, sharper. And but for the woodwork and perhaps a surprising overturned VAR decision could be out of sight. If anything, Milan will be relieved this tie is still alive and will be praying Rafael Leao is fit for next week. There are interesting questions about the golf and quality between the two semi-finals we've seen and the coverage in the UK. Also today, the big questions from the WSL. Chelsea a point behind Manchester United in the title race. They meet in the FA Cup final. There's a Premier League preview, a look ahead to the National League playoff final. Barry's starring role in a movie trailer. Your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Mark Langdon from the Racing Post, welcome. Hi, Max. Uh, Nicky Bandini, hello. Morning. Hello, Barry Glendenning. Hello, Max Rushton. All right, let's start then at the San Siro. Uh, Milan nil into two. Nicky, you were there. Atmosphere and the crowd seemed deafening. Before we get into the game, give us an idea of that and just how the city has been in the build-up. Yeah, I, I think like the the atmosphere at, at San Siro, I, I, I feel like this goes for a lot of Italian stadiums, if I'm honest, and I think it is something to do with organised fandom. It's to do with that ultra element, actually, which, of course, has its, its light and its dark, has its problems. But when you're inside San Siro, which, of course, is a huge stadium, it's, it's 75,000 people, but there's this moment before kickoff, and I'm talking like an hour before kickoff, and I was down there on the sidelines because I was doing some, some work for Stan, as you know, and... You've got all the different suicide reporters at different slots doing their things. And it's it's there's a noise, there's a hubbub going on about an hour before kickoff. But then there's a moment, there's a moment when the home ultras go, all right, it's go time. And the volume goes from hubbub to deafening, to you can't hear the person standing a foot away from you. And it, it, it was really such a, a build-up yesterday. I got to San Siro at 5.30 local time. And of course, that's an hour later than UK time. So kickoff is nine o'clock, but that's still three and a half hours or kickoff. And it wasn't like a few people outside. It was absolutely sort of packed, ready to go outside, even though the gates weren't open yet. Um, All the sort of food stands, everyone having a drink. And it was that sense of build-up from from that and before that. I mean, it's been ever since the the draw was known or at least ever since they won their games and we knew that this semi-final was going to happen. It's been building up in the city. But the tension building up... 
in that last hour, once the noise started, was really so... It's strange because you know, I'm there as someone who hasn't got a horse in the race. I'm I'm not picking sides in this game, but I felt it. I felt nervous. I felt that edge. And it's it's a real thrill to be around on, on I think, occasions and, and days like that. Although in the end, once the game started, it felt like some of the tension came out of it. I felt quite quickly. Yeah. I, and I wonder, was that tension? I mean, I read Johnny Lou's piece, which I thought was brilliant about it. And, and I'd felt the same, that when you think about playing your rival in a semi-final of the Champions League, it's... It feels less about winning it and more about not losing it to them, you know? Yeah, I, I think that's completely accurate. And I think it's it's all amplified in in a bunch of different directions. I think, first of all, consider the fact that these teams haven't been in the habit of being here, right? So first of all, it's this is a, a chance that's going to be here. Maybe it'll be another generation before we see this again or longer. I mean, the last time they played each other in a semi-final was 20 years ago, but just the last time Milan were in a final, which they won, was 2007. For Inter, it was 2010. It's, it's a long time. So there's that part of it. Then there's the part of it that actually neither of these teams has had a great domestic season so if you want to qualify for the Champions League right now that's not even certain for next season they're fourth and fifth in the table then it's the fact of playing in a Champions League final then it's the fact of but if we don't do it if we miss out on a Champions League final which is painful losing a Champions League semi-final is painful our rival might go and do it they might win it they, we might have to sit here and watch them win the Champions League go and beat Real Madrid or, or or Manchester City, and you might tell yourself, well, it's not likely those teams are better or whatever, but you know it can happen. It's a game of football. And all of those things have such a multiplier effect. I, Yeah, I have a lot of cousins who support Inter and, and I've been receiving some of the text messages I've had from them in the last couple of weeks have been very funny because they're basically all just acknowledging that they don't know how to sit down or calm down because they're so stressed the whole time. It feels odd, Barry, to suggest that Pioli and, and, and Milan might be relieved and Inter slightly frustrated that this game finished 2-0 to Inter Milan? Uh, I don't think it's odd to suggest that. I, I'd say Pioli and Milan are absolutely delighted to get away with a 2-0 defeat because it could have been a lot worse if the penalty hadn't been overturned, if that uh, Kalanoglu rasper from distance hadn't hit the post. They had a chance or two themselves, but they started so badly, the absence of Rafael Leao, I think, can't be overstated. And then to lose Ismail Benesser early doors to injury, that's a huge loss as well, because being a Syria side, they, they don't really have the money to, to have strength, the kind of strength and depth you see from uh, Premier League sides in the Champions League. You know, even the Inter bench was was considerably stronger than the the Milan one. Uh, but I I I'd say Inter are probably delighted they won two nil, and they definitely, you know, were protecting that two nil lead in the second half. They could have gone for the kill, could have finished the tie, and while Milan were pretty bad last night, I wouldn't rule out a comeback on their part. And if they were to come back and win this. Inter will be, then they will regret only winning 2-0. But I, I, for the time being, I'd imagine they're quite happy with that. Delighted, in fact. Yeah. And Eduardo says, can Eddie Dzeko win the Champions League before Manchester City? He was great, but not just the goal, but sort of in this sort of battle of two, I was going to say old, haggard target men, but that's no way to describe Olivier Giroud, is it? And, <laughs> and, you know, but it, to see him play so well, and, and I guess in a sense for people with Premier League blinkers, of which I probably am one, to realise that you 
just because a player leaves the Premier League doesn't mean that they just instantly go to the glue factory, you know? <laughs> no, and I mean, Dzeko has been sort of at it in, in Italy for a long time and been very effective. And even on, I was listening to some of the radio coverage before the game and there was sort of a sense of surprise maybe that Dzeko was in ahead of Lukaku. And that, again, might be down to some kind of just Premier League bias, um, maybe. But I also think, in terms of comparing those two forwards, you know, it, it's a lot easier for that target man to thrive and look good when there are other players making runs beyond. And, you know, so Lautaro Martinez obviously was causing problems. You had the wing backs, particularly DeMarco down the left-hand side. There's a lot of quality in the midfield, Mkhitaryan, and Shalanolu, and also Barella, who I thought was fantastic um, once again. So, um, you know, uh, Giroud maybe would have looked better had Liao been there to kind of just offer that threat in behind that then creates sort of space and opportunities maybe to get those crosses in. Um, it, it was very difficult um, for Giroud to get into the game. But now, you know, Dzeko is still doing um, you know a fine job. And I do think it's um, another thing that's interesting is that if you believe in kind of the underlying stats and, um, you know, you know uh, expected goals and expected points, Inter are very close to Napoli this season on those metrics. And uh, the league table says, of course, that there's you know miles between the two. But this was one of them performances maybe where it did come together um, for Inter and they were able... Um, you know, they've left a lot of goals on the on the table really this season so far, and they were able to take those early opportunities that really you know, killed the game early on. Just to pick up on, on what Mark was just saying there, I think it's really interesting because I know a lot of people when Napoli went out to Milan looked around and went, "Oh, it's just shame. Napoli have been so great, and and wouldn't it sort of be better for the competition to have Napoli? They might be able to upset Man City." And I think. You can say two things at once, which is that Napoli absolutely have been the best team in Serie A this season, deserve to win their title by a mile, which is what they've done. But I'm actually not sure they're the best team in Italy today. And I think that's a really sort of important nuance. Napoli's season has faded and, and there's all sorts of reasons for that, which is a different subject for a different day. Whereas Inter, as Mark's suggesting just then, they were supposed to compete for the title. They were the team, frankly, who everyone expected to win this Scudetto, them or Juventus probably at the start of the season, certainly not Napoli. And it's because, and this comes to what Baz was saying, actually they do have great depth. You know, uh, you had Simone Inzaghi yesterday making some difficult decisions between do I start Lukaku, who's got three goals and three assists in his last three games, or Dzeko up front? Do I start Chalanoglu in midfield? Or do I start Brozovic, who's a brilliant footballer, who's Everyone's been seeing what he can do with Croatia again at the World Cup, but he's been doing that in Serie A for years. And and these are genuine choices, um, which Milan don't really have, um, especially not when you take out Leao, and even more when you take out Benazir, who I think is that move to push him up to a number 10 role was a real sort of pivot point towards better things for them in the second part of the season. So the, the depth is, is, a, is a really big issue. And I, I do think Inter were supposed to be better than they've been in the league this season, but they have delivered it in the Cups. And uh, and it's it's actually kind of astonishing when you look at Simone Inzaghi's Cup record since he's been there. I mean, last season he won the Supercoppa and the Coppa Italia. This season he's won the, Cop- the Supercoppa. He's in the Coppa Italia final this month, and now he's on the verge of a Champions League final. He's He's not been able to get consistency out of that team, but... When push comes to shove, he has got results out of them in, in, in every knockout competition there is. And yet he's under pressure, Nicky. Yeah, because they might not make the top four, um, which is crazy because they were supposed to be a, a, a contender for the league title. I think it's a, a sort of fascinating subplot this game, actually, which, which we talked about last night, Max, which is that you've got two 
clubs in the semi-final of Champions League. You don't necessarily expect to see in the semi-final of Champions League these days. It's been a long time, as we were just talking about. And yet both of their managers are under pressure because purely it's the same thing. They're fifth in the table. It's, it's not certain how how his um, job security is. But I, I would say in Inzaghi's case, it's trending in a better direction because, again, calling back to what Mark just said, like the underlying numbers have been good. The results are now good and they're looking to me the more likely the two to finish in the top four and if they finish in the top four and reach Champions League final you'd be pretty hard pressed to turn around and say to him he's not done a good enough job yeah that penalty decision Barry Simon Kerr miscontrols it Martinez gets past him he tries to pull him down whether he successfully gets enough of the shirt to cause him to go down is a different question Rio Ferdinand and Steven Gerrard on BT said they thought it was a penalty. Ex-pros who I trust, Craig Foster and Mark Bosnich, also said it was a penalty, but I wasn't so sure, or at least I was pleased it was overturned. Yeah, uh, Pat Nevin, who I would trust more than any of the others you mentioned, I think he he didn't think it was a penalty. I thought on first view it was. The ref is obviously summoned to the screen, has a look and overturns the decision. And I think he was probably right to do that because I didn't think it was a foul, having seen replays. Was it a clear and obvious error on the referee's part? That is a matter of opinion, I suppose. Um, And that's therein lies the problem with VAR because ultimately it's still a human making the decision. I'm glad for the sake of the tie it was overturned. I... I personally don't think it was a penalty i think when the ref goes to the screen it's it's not did you make the wrong decision it's did you make a clear and obvious error i don't think he necessarily did but that again that is a matter of opinion mm. uh, jake says and we had a lot of questions like this and this is perhaps the most sensationist of it nikki but it says have you ever seen a bigger disparity in quality between two Champions League semi-finals. It reminds me of watching a Premier League game on TV, then going to my son's under sevens football. I have to readjust <laughs> expectations on what the players can actually do. And I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to be provocative. And, and actually, I thought you mentioned Pat Nevin. I thought he was really interesting on this subject last night on Five Live when he said, it, it, "It's not, it's not insulting to say this game is going to be a lower quality than Real Madrid Man City. It's just understanding the financial positions of all of these sides, right?" Yeah, it, it, look, I I think people can sort of uh, exaggerate these things in their minds as well. I agree, I agree that the Real Madrid-Man City game was, was played at a higher quality, but I also think it's worth reminding ourselves, Inter did knock Barcelona out of this competition and Milan did knock um, Tottenham and Napoli out of this competition. They haven't sort of got here by winning a lucky dip. Like, they've beaten teams to get here. Um, and I... I think excluding the possibility that one of these teams could win the final yet is is silly in my opinion. Having said that, yes, whichever of these teams wins it is going to be the underdog. And I I think that when you go player for player through these teams, you get exactly what you expect, which is richer teams can afford a higher quality of player. It's it's sort of came up last night um, again on the broadcast, Max, but Hakan Chalanoglu was saying not so long ago he thinks he belongs in the top five midfielders in or deep line midfielders Regista in, in the world, he sort of puts himself in that category alongside explicitly naming sort of Modric and Casemiro, saying, I think I'm I'm you know, I belong with that group of players. And and I think a lot of people hear that and raise an eyebrow at it and, and want to mock it. But look, he, he was good last night. He set up the first goal, he hit the woodwork and he's going to get a chance to prove 
to prove it one way or another, right? Because he's going to be playing against um, potentially some of those players in the final. So we'll we'll see. But yes, I, it was it was a lesser of the two finals, uh, the two semi-finals in terms of absolute quality for sure. Something else I wanted to ask you, Nick, it was about the rivalry, about you know the historic rivalry between Milan and Inter, because it's not not based on religion or class or sort of acrimony, is it? I, I was just trying to gauge sort of what what it is. Like, what is their hatred? I was, in Johnny's piece, he sort of mentioned, actually, it sort of seems sometimes both sets of fans hate Juve more than they hate each other. What, what is the rivalry? Yeah, I, I think Johnny captured it really nicely in his piece. It's a lovely piece he wrote. There isn't this sort of obvious divide that you get in some cities. Um, there's not Glasgow where you've got religion as a divide. It's not Bock against River where you've got class to divide, whether it's wealthy or poor. And it's not even sort of Rome where you have a regional sort of divide or, or like a neighbourhoods divide. You know, in Rome, Lazio and Roma, that really comes down to what part of the city you were born in. Inter were, were literally sort of created from Milan. They were a, a split away club. All at the time, it was all because of rules about international sort of limits on, on foreign players you could have in a team. And they've sort of grown up together, sort of in, in symbiosis. And in many ways, there's is a rivalry of incredible parity. I mean, they've both won 19 league titles, Max, exactly the same number. They're both competing right now to be the first one that gets the second star on their shirts. And yes, Milan have won more often in Europe. They've got seven Champions Leagues to, to Inter's three, but this is still the only city anywhere in Europe where you can say more than one team has won the Champions League. Now, Manchester might join that group soon, but we'll see. Um, so it's really been a rivalry that that's that's sort of all its own and in which you've seen really big players play for both teams. Ronaldo, I saw last night at both ends of the pitch, there was one moment I looked across and I saw an Inter banner for Roberto Baggio. I looked up and saw immediately a Milan banner for Roberto Baggio because he played for both teams, you know. Ibrahimovic, um, Pirlo, Seydorf, so many players who've played for both teams, which you don't see often in City rivalries. So there is this idea in Milan that rather than sort of bitter enemies, they call each other cugini, cousins. They're they're the cousins who you like to wind up. I did see one um, stand of Milan memorabilia when I was on the way out last night, which said, I don't have any cousins, you know, which I thought was sort of the extent of which this sort of uh, rivalry goes sometimes. So look, there's still nastiness sometimes. It's enough to remember... 18 years ago when they played in the quarterfinals and a flare gets thrown at Dida and the whole game gets suspended. There have been bad incidents, but I think compared to some rivalries, it's it's it feels more like a rivalry about, you know, whose prestige, whose history is greater rather than a rivalry about, oh, we hate these guys and it's the bitterest thing you can imagine. We had quite a lot of co- questions, Barry, about the coverage in the, in the UK. Matt says, rather than have Serie A experts on, can you please have guests on who haven't watched Italian football in 30 years? Um, I opt for the BT Sport approach that everyone's enjoyed this evening. Uh, Ken says, talk about BT and nothing else, a fascinating production. What explains it? I mean, I tend to watch the Australian coverage, which is excellent. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, yes. loath to, I'm loath to criticise other broadcasters just for the sake of it, because, you know, it's not necessarily the most straightforward thing to do in the world. Expectations are quite high. It might have been brilliant. I don't know. But was there anything particularly remiss yesterday? I was just interested in why we got so many questions on that subject. Well, thanks for throwing that one to me, Max. Another nice <laughs> hospital pass. Look, but I suppose before I get talk about BT, Jake Humphrey hosts the BT podcast or coverage. I'm not a fan of his, but I'm a, that's not really anything to do with his hosting ability. I just find his whole 
uh, world-class basics, high performance, LinkedIn shtick, disingenuous. That's why I'm not a fan of Jay Comfrey. As far as the coverage is concerned, I find BT Sports coverage of football and champ- or Champions League football in particular quite bad. It's it's humorless, it's too chummy, it's too matey. Um, but ultimately, I'm there to watch the football, so the coverage isn't that important. A lot of people seem quite upset that last night they think seem to think because it, BT's Serie A coverage is very good that they should have had Jimbo and James Horncastle presenting it. James Horncastle had a role and presenting the Champions League football is Jake's gig. So, you know, he can't just be expected to stand aside and let Jimbo do it because Jimbo knows more about Serie A football than him. Uh, there did seem to be an air last night that who were the pundits? Is this Owen Hargreaves, Peter Crouch, Stephen Gerrard and Hargreaves, was it? Rio Ferdinand. And Rio was at the game with, with James Horncastle. They don't watch Serie A football, but, you know, here am I discussing the game, and I, I don't watch very much Serie A football either, so I'm certainly not going to criticise them for that. I suspect, Max, you don't watch a great deal of it. Uh, I know Nicky does, and Mark seems to spend his entire life watching football from all over Europe and beyond. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not going to criticise them for that because that would be very hypocritical. But by and large, I do find their Champions League coverage pretty dull. And and they, I'm, I'm not a fan of the fact that they always latch on to you know, refereeing controversies. That's their go-to thing to discuss rather than good play or what happened here or why is this not working why is there gaping holes in Milan's midfield so yeah that that I suppose is my take on it mm. mate you ran with that hospital pass so thank, thanks Barry uh, Mark well I think a lot of people are complaining about Rio Ferdinand sort of you know, being in the stadium and they dropped him into sort of the Peter Walton role where he would you know just pop up every 15 or 20 minutes and then not really have long enough to um, actually speak about the game. And so you just got, um, you know, a 10 second sound bite where he just goes something like, oh, this is amazing. Or, you know, the, the crowd noise is fantastic. Oh, um, you know, that's not, you know, that, that doesn't really impact on, on, on the viewer. I do, I, I agree with Barry that, you know, I, I don't think they should just rip up their Champions League coverage to start bringing in um, people that are absolute experts in Serie A. But it would be nice if the people that are doing it I'd spent 10 minutes research. Um, you know, I don't think it's that difficult if your job is to be on sort of, you know, a, a big TV broadcast for a Champions League semi-final, that if you haven't watched these two teams that much, that you... I mean, I've, I know somebody, for instance, that does a lot, a former professional, and he will ring me up often and just say, I'm doing RZ Alkmaar or whatever. Um, you know, can you just, you know, what, what do you know about them? And I'll happily spend a couple of minutes. Um, I don't know if Nicky gets the same from anyone, but you definitely, you know, there are, there are some that take it more seriously than others. I, I've, I, I really don't like it when a former pro turns up and thinks that it's okay to just be on the broadcast and, and just, you know, their medals be a good enough reason for them to talk about the game. Is the former pro you speak of Don Hutchison by any chance? It's not actually. So I, okay. I, I, I was an was just something I just threw out there. But um... no, I I just because I he does stuff on BT and I I find him excellent and he's clearly done a lot of homework in in a manner in which 
more famous former footballers than Don Hutchison haven't. He, he would be of a similar kind of level, I would say, Barry. So he's not somebody that, you know, is Steven Gerrard um, standard, yeah. Yeah, but we know that from talks, but, you know, guys like Tony Cascarino, Perry Groves, doing, like, a lot of work, like, take the job incredibly seriously. It was interesting with BT that, you know, the goal show is brilliant, right? I don't know who any of those guys are, but it's great. They brought in journalists to be on, like, Score, which Sky haven't done, you know? They brought in, like, Rory Smith has done it, Lars has done it, you know, other people have done it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. So they're not averse to getting experts in, even if they haven't played loads of football. Uh, anyway, that'll do for uh, part one. Uh, part two, we'll do a Premier League preview. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, let's look at the games in the Premier League then uh, this weekend. Uh, Everton, Man City. Um, Mark, can can Sean Dyche mastermind another victory? I mean, I still can't work out where that, you know, exhibition of counter-attacking football against Brighton came from. <laughs> uh, no, nor can I. Um, you know, the, the early goal may, makes a big difference if you are a team that wants to play on the break. But I thought all over the pitch, they, you know, they, they played fantastically. Um, you know, in in terms of Pickford was great. I thought Yerry Mina coming in made a difference to the defence. The midfield, you know, Decore seemed to be everywhere. You know what you're going to get from Idrissa Gay. I think Garner actually somebody that's come in quite recently. I hadn't noticed him too much, but um, I, I've liked what I've seen from him. And then you know Dwight McNeil kind of you know turning into Messi um, has, has certainly helped. Uh, and, and also Calvert Lewin being back just knit it all together. You know, he looks fit again, which is, has been a problem for them. I think they can make it awkward for, for Manchester City because I am expecting Guardiola, given he didn't make changes um, during the game against Real Madrid and, they've you know, the return leg is so important. I am expecting changes. And while they're bringing in quality, you know, if it's Mares, Foden, uh, Julian Alvarez, players of, of that calibre, I just think from a rhythm point of view, it, it it doesn't always work, does it, if you maybe make five or six changes. And so there is the potential, I think, there for Everton to to make life um, you know, you're uncomfortable, maybe, um, for, for Manchester City. I would still expect City to eventually find um, a, a, a route to, to victory. And the fact that they're able to lose one game and still win the league, I think, does make a difference just from a pressure point of view and you know, if, if Arsenal can get it to where you know there's no more mistakes for Manchester City it could be different but while they've got that buffer um, it, it I, I yeah it, it's, it's it's a nice 
position to be in for City to to know that they can drop points somewhere. The Everton side of it is one side of it, and there's the Brighton side of it as well. And De Zerbi's a, a great manager who I admire a lot, but but his teams have always had this sort of result in them because of the way they play, because they take risks, because they like to go one on one with people. And and if you push that, sometimes every now and then someone's going to just catch you out. And and I think City don't do that. City aren't going to take the sort of risks against Everton that that Brighton expose themselves to. And actually, De Zerbi being who he is, and you will know this better than I do, Nicky, you know, they go to Arsenal. I get the impression that he won't want two performances like that together. In fact, that, that defeat might be the worst possible result for Arsenal going into an Arsenal-Brighton game. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is, is like a... I don't think that's just De Zerbi. Any manager's going to use that as an excuse to give their team a kick up the bum, aren't they? You've just got hammered by a team in a relegation fight. You can't perform like that again. And now you're playing a team at the top of the table. All the motivation is in the right place for it, definitely. Yeah. Um, but I guess that victory that you had at Newcastle must give you hope, right? Like what you have to do, and we've said it before on this pod, is you just have to be in the position if City do screw it up. I feel like every time I come on this podcast, you try to coax me into like having some hope, Max. <laughs> every time I come on, it's always like, why don't you Why don't you believe Arsenal are going to win the league? What, what's, your, what's your hope percentage at this stage now like zero zero yeah, yeah for right. me for me but it's it's not based on arsenal it's based on manchester city and i think that's the thing like and i know everyone wanted to in you know get into the, the bottling conversation and oh arsenal had the lead and they did and they, they, they let it slip but at some point everyone's gonna have to look at the number of games city have won in a row and go that's quite unusual that's not actually like normal for a football <laughs> team just to win that many games without dropping any points anywhere so that's the reason it's hard to have any hope is because that team's a, a juggernaut uh, at Elland Road, Leeds play Newcastle. Um, uh, one of big Sam's former clubs coming to Elland Road. When I said, and you you and I said this on the pod, Barry, that you know, every football fan, barring Man City fans, wanted Leeds to beat Man City. A few Newcastle fans got in touch with me to say, that isn't the case. <laughs> we don't want big Sam to have any, any success at all. Um, how do you see this one going? Can you see, I mean, the atmosphere at Elland Road will be great, won't it? Yeah, um... I would expect Newcastle to win. They are a much better team than Leeds. Uh, I wasn't impressed with Leeds' performance against Manchester City, even though they lost only lost 2-1 away. We'll see what Sam has done with them in the, the week that passed between games. They, they may get a result, but you would expect Newcastle to win and probably win quite comfortably. Do you see Mark Nottingham Forest getting anything from Chelsea who are now on a, a, a wild winning run, aren't they? I, I, I don't, just because Nottingham Forest have been so bad away from home virtually all season. Okay, they it was a better show at, at Liverpool when, when they lost 3-2, but generally speaking, all of their good work has been done at home. And I think Nedham was on the, the pod a couple of weeks ago and just saying, he just expected to Chelsea uh, Chelsea to win every game because he just looked at the team. And I sort of got to, I was in that position and then finally gave up on them against Bournemouth and thought this is another <laughs> one that they won't win. And then they did win. But when you look at the, the players and okay, there are motivational issues and, and many other problems there, they're still considerably better than the Nottingham Forest and, and should be able to win that game even if they're not at full tilt. So I was just looking at how many points you might need to stay up. I was I was thinking it, it could be 34. So Leeds potentially need like four from those three games. Forest, because of their goal difference, might need two, um, one potentially. So 
I don't think it will come here. And then they've got Arsenal. I think it's only 34. It's interesting. You just, I mean, I The problem guess... is, Max, we always think that teams at the bottom are suddenly going to start winning games, but they're down at the bottom because they're not, <laughs> they don't win very many matches. And so, you know, you look at Leicester, they've got Liverpool, um, they've got Newcastle. I mean, I don't see anything really from those two games. And then they've got West Ham on, on the final day. Um, so, no, I mean, it, I, I just think we start giving teams at the bottom. Uh, too much credit um, at this stage of the season just because they need to win rather than what they've actually done for the whole season. You couldn't be more right. I mean, I literally look at the bottom of the league table and I add on 100% of the points. So they got three, they get nine points. They've got three games left, they get nine <laughs> points. Even though you're right, Leicester are playing Liverpool and then Newcastle. I've managed, Nicky, to predict. I do like this predictor thing with some mates. And I've managed to get Tottenham into the Champions League by predicting defeats for Liverpool, Brighton and Manchester United for for the rest of the season. Despite the fact that, you're right, Liverpool play Leicester and Manchester United play Wolves. So, I mean, I guess the only thing is Liverpool on this really good run, aren't they? So, So United and Newcastle just need to you know, one or two more wins should be enough for them. You would think so, yeah. I, I don't want to 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 burst your bubble on your on your Premier League predictor, but the the, the form the form suggests maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, there's no green in Tottenham's form, is there? Look, in the vaguely meaningless games, um, uh, Villa would play Spurs. We'd upset Villa and Wolves fans by saying their game was meaningless. It wasn't on Monday. I know it meant a lot to Wolves and sort of guaranteed their Premier League status. And you know, Villa are still. Uh, have European aspirations, as do Tottenham. Uh, Southampton play Fulham. Southampton need an absolute miracle to survive. Could could I just state, yes. Max, that it was you who said that Wolves Villa was meaningless and elected not to give it any airtime beyond that and nothing to do with me. Well, it's nothing to do with you, but it, well, it is something to do with you. It's to do with the panel like to talk, and I don't. I have no problem with having a panel who like to talk. Um, you know, especially having interviewed lots of indie bands in the Soccer and Glory years, which is <laughs> like blood from a stone. However, like sometimes we have to rush along and I get notes saying, can you rush along? Because the ideal duration of a podcast is 55 minutes and we're always over that. I don't know who makes that duration, but it's not my fault either. I mean, we're, go- we're going to be in trouble on Monday because, I mean, just what a weekend of football that's coming up. We have the Premier League games. You got the Championship, League One, League Two playoff semis, National League final playoff, old firm Celtic being coronated, or Celtic's coronation against Rangers, and the Women's FA Cup final. It's a lot of stuff, Max. Mm. What are you going to leave out? Uh, I don't know, but if I leave anything out, it's because I don't like that team and that league, and it's all on me. Um, so, yes. Just to mention all the games in the Premier League, Palace, Bournemouth, real last on match of the day vibes for that one and Brentford, West Ham on Sunday. And obviously West Ham have got European football tonight against Azeg Atmar, so and they're pretty much safe, aren't they? So they'll probably rest a few. Um, Chesterfield, Notts County, one of the games that um, uh, Barry mentioned there, Mark, in the non, in the National League playoff final, and after those utterly ridiculous semi-finals, I mean, they should. I imagine they'll all just be absolutely shattered still. They'll all just be in a heap, be sort of wheeled on, and what well, they'd rather just sit on beanbags and watch romantic comedies. Just put <laughs> put Sleepless in Seattle on, and the squads can both watch them <laughs> with some kittens walk around their feet. But they've got to play a football match. They have. I mean, it was ridiculous um, semi-finals, and then obviously we had the madness of Monday as well sort of exhausting just watching it but I'm I'm Notts County one of the fav- my favourite teams to watch this season their football 
you know, you know, I love Napoli. Manchester City are always, you know, quite interesting. And, you know, in France, you've got somebody like Lons that, um, you know, I, I think are doing great. But like Notts County's foot, football is, to me, much more pleasurable than watching my own sort of team. I support Tottenham and that's a chore. I mean, and that's then not like, hard, Mark. I mean, that is no, a low no, bar. It is, but, you know, so I, I, I really like what Luke Williams, the, the Notts County coach, has done in terms of, you know, enjoy it. Football should be enjoying, shouldn't it? It shouldn't be like hard work. It, it's entertainment. It, it might be a job for the players and the manager, but as a manager, you can you can choose to be anything as a coach. You, your philosophy um, you know, can can be at one end of the scale or the other. And I just don't know why sort of everybody doesn't choose the a Deserby approach, or in in this case. Luke Williams, because even when they were chasing that match in the, the semi-final and, you know, it's ridiculous that they're even in the playoffs, 107 points, 117 goals, um, you know, to not go up automatically um, is outrageous, really. And I think that, um, you know, the, the one-up automatically probably needs looking at. They, they do need to go to a three down in, in League Two. Um, but to then be 2-0 down in that playoff semi-final, but even in the sort of injury time, they were still sticking to the process and still trying to play the football and create space for the wide players and, and just, you know, move it from defence through midfield. Um, you know, absolute joy to watch. So I hope that they, they do it against Chesterfield. There's a good story for Chesterfield as well. I mean, Paul Cook back in charge of, of the Spyrites. He um, had promotions in with Chesterfield, also with Wigan, had a terrible time at Ipswich, wasn't the only one that, that sort of failed to get Ipswich going ended up back um, down at Chesterfield. And they had a, you know, a good season themselves, finished third on 84 points. So, um, but that, that was still obviously a distance behind Notts County. So I, I think it'll be a, a game sort of fit for uh, Wembley. Not They have moved it around, not always played that playoff final at Wembley, but I think it is, um, that is the rightful home um, for it. Um, you know, the ticketing prices seem to be back at a level. There was also some um, you know, fans not happy maybe in some years with the ticketing prices to have looked at that. Um, but anybody that's paid for a ticket should get a you know a really good game on Saturday. And, you know, if you at a miss and, and not watching um, any other game, then I, I advise you to um, yeah tune in. It should be fun. We had a go at BT earlier, but their coverage of non-league football is excellent. Yeah, I have to say. Yeah, Adam Somerton, who does the Serie A as well, he's yeah, top class. Yeah, he's brilliant, isn't he? He's great. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, that's good balance. Hopefully the BT execs have listened all the way through just in case they were going to hire us, Barry, before <laughs> the end of part one. Um, uh, that'll do then for part two. Susie Rack will join us. We'll talk WSL in a second. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Let's get uh, a roundup from the WSL. Susie Rack, Guardian Women's Football Correspondent, joins us. Hey, Susie. Hey, how are you doing, guys? Yeah, good, thank you. Uh, so a couple of straightforward wins for Chelsea and Arsenal yesterday. Chelsea 6-0 over uh, Leicester. Arsenal 4-0 at Brighton, which means the top of the league. What Chelsea were in the box seat, I'd say. They got a game in hand on Manchester United. They're a point behind. But it isn't over because... On the 21st, there's this massive day where Chelsea play Arsenal and Manchester United play Manchester City. Oh, it's great. It's just like the tastiest title race in years. I mean, it was tight last season, but like it's never been four-way like this um, and this close. And there yeah, so many nuances to it with those two games coming up. The thing is, is with Chelsea, they've had 
by their standards, a re- relatively average season in terms of like performances. Um, you know, they've we've been so used to like Sam Kerr, Frank Herbie, Panilla Harder sort of swaggering through injuries to Panilla and Fran have meant that they've sort of almost like staggered across the line a little bit. But in May, just regardless, no matter what happens, they're just a different beast. Um, they've just got this this relentlessness to them. I mean, they've closed a 13-goal difference gap on Man United in two games um, to bring it down to zero. They've got a game in hand over them and they're one point behind. It's just like they've got their like foot on the throat and they're ready to squeeze it, basically. Yeah, they're just absolutely dogged. And Panilla Harder coming back at this moment has been pretty perfect for them because Sam Kerr, I mean, like she would battle through to get to the World Cup and play it even if she had like two broken legs and a missing arm. But she looks pretty exhausted. So having Panilla come back in, get two goals and assists coming off the bench um, last week and then uh, get two goals and another assist um, last night, playing like 70 minutes or something is just massive like absolutely huge so I, yeah I mean for me for weeks I've not been able to look past Chelsea for the title regardless of like how good Manchester United are doing regardless of how bad Chelsea have been regardless of the like toll of the Champions League exit all of those things are just like come May when there's trophies on the line Chelsea are relentless but then it's the FA Cup final between the pair this weekend as well which is like could have a say either way, <laughs> weirdly, in that like it will either, you know, really spur on whoever loses it to really, really grind out for the title, could exhaust Chelsea if they win it, who knows? Um, or like, you know, basically either team have got a double, <laughs> a trophy apiece, or nothing on the table, and like that's quite exciting. Yeah, it's great. I do I, I was just wondering, can you put your finger on why Chelsea or how Chelsea have have sort of turned that around. I wonder if, if, if like the Champions League exit sort of peaked, not peaked their interest, that's the wrong phrase, but, you know, focused their mind where Emma Hayes suddenly went, look, we don't want to end the season with nothing, guys, or, you know, without a major title. I don't know. I think it's it's like, the thing is, is they've, they've still been winning, right? Like they're still in second, uh, won 16 games, lost two, drawn one. Like their their record is still incredibly strong. Um, but they, yeah, it, it just hasn't been as like cantering and like beautiful to watch. And it's just that that's what's switched. That's what's turned. I think Panilla Harder coming back is a big part of that. But in terms of like the way they step it up in May, it like it's just. I don't know, I, I maybe it comes with the experience of winning, the experience of being in this position so many times. You know, this is if they won the double, it'd be their third straight double, um, which is great for them, less great for the like optics of the league in what has actually been one of the most competitive seasons um ever in the WSL. But yeah, I think they've they've just they've just got a wet like I mean, Emma Hayes talks about it a lot. She recruits people who are like problem solvers on the pitch you know she's got a lot of captains in her squad she she recruits people that can you know whether she's on the sideline or not can can cope without her so like to a certain extent and you know I'd say this season tactically she's been tested a little bit um and has maybe made a few wrong decisions in the league cup final against Arsenal there was like a, a late change in the first half to a back three that then reverted to a back four in the in the second half again like really like quite bizarre um and they really struggled in that game and they had lost it in the first half um so there's been some weird tactical decisions but for some reason like 
the players, the mentality of the players, the group that she's put together, just have this ability just to sort of shift up a gear in May in a way that, like, it means that you can just never, ever bet against them. I just, I would never, ever bet against Chelsea. Like, if they, if they've got the title in their hands, regardless of what position they are in the league, to to win it, I just would never, ever make that bet. Has Emma Hayes ever hinted at sort of how? long she might want to carry on doing this not in a kind of when will she go and manage a random league two men's team but just in a she might just want to go and do something else and and like would the impact of her leaving Chelsea be similar to sort of the conversation about say Pep leaving Man City oh 100% I think it would definitely be that level of conversation be huge like irreplaceable in terms of the way the whole of Chelsea women's setup has been like built from her from one chair in one room to like a whole hub there. So she like her her hands have touched absolutely every element of progress at that club for ten years. So like yeah, it it would be a huge huge loss. But it's a conversation that sort of comes up time and time again because she wants she desperately. I think if she won the Champions League, she would be gone, and she desperately wants it. But they still feel a fair way from that. So it's how long does she wait to like kind of almost give up on that dream with Chelsea and maybe go and do it somewhere else or do it with a national team or move to a men's side or something? Or does she keep pushing for that? And I think like I think that's the internal battle she's probably having every single season, every time they come out of the, the Champions League. But I like I would lo- like she speaks Spanish. I would love to see her manage, manage the Spain national team. Susie, how does that like what you talked about there, that that desire to win the Champions League, interact then with the sort of strong possibility, it sounds like the harder and Ericsson might move on this summer, like as the contracts are up, is that going to be, that feels like a potential inflection point for any team to have two players go at the same time like that, especially when they're as, as good as them. Yeah, and from what I hear, it's um, it's like that they, you know, really would like to stay sort of long term, but maybe can't get that commitment out of Chelsea. Obviously, they come as a pair to a certain extent um, at this stage of their careers and their lives and stuff. And so it's like how how they juggle that. But like as I understand it, they've got like some really good players lined up to come in. Um, all of the talk is of Katarine Macario at Leon, um, who's a phenomenal young forward, US uh, international, who has been brilliant this season. She's sort of come in later into the campaign because she had an ACL injury, as everyone in the world of women's football has at the moment. And uh, but yeah, I mean, she would be she's an open in a harder who is obviously significantly experienced as well in the Champions League, like is um, just incredible in so many ways. Like her game is just so complete, but she's so, so talented and you know, ready to slot in to a certain extent and prove herself at the very, very top level, which she's already started to do at Leon. So they they have been like making moves to bring in players. I think Ashley Lawrence is a defender that they've been looking at who will probably be a replacement for harder. They bought in Buchanan last uh, summer who has sort of underperformed, like below expectation, I would say, having come from Leon, but sort of struggle to keep up with the pace of the league but they've already sort of I mean Emma Hayes always says she's working sort of two three four years ahead and there's been times you know I, I watching them the other watching them last night I was like how could they let them leave they're both brilliant they could go on for seasons more like don't do it but then I thought that when Emma let Katie Chapman go and and Karen Carney and Julie Flaherty I was like what is she doing she's mad she lost her mind but she all like I just 
I um, have, have like given up on trying to second guess Emma Hayes and her decision making because often it ends up being pretty correct. Although, yeah, I think, I mean, Ericsson has struggled for game time this season, but when she's coming at the end of the season, she'd be brilliant. Harder. I mean, I, I, I don't know how any team could not see that as a loss, but yeah, it's uh, it's going to be really interesting to see how they sort of transition through that, especially with you know Frank Kirby's injury situation sort of up and down and up and down constantly. Susan, you mentioned Leon there, um, you know, with the real flag bearers at one stage for for women's football, and Orlas, the club president, was was you know a big um, supporter of women's football. He's leaving Leon. Is is that set to impact on the women's team at all, or do you think they'll be able to sort of carry on? You'd like to think it won't impact too much, given that they are like eight-time European champions and that they're so embedded in the club and that the ethos of the club, like every single player that's played at Lyon um, and that talks about it, just like so many clubs talk about one club um, mentality and and values and all of that. But like a lot of them say that it, that Lyon is where it's at, where it actually feels real. So you'd like to think that won't end. But, I mean, he's been such a driving force, um, like, in pushing player wages up and things like that and really, like, driving, like, setting the standard and pushing the bar higher out of principle, not just out of because because he has to, because someone else is bidding more. He's been the one pushing that bar higher and higher and higher because he says, I interviewed him a couple of years ago, he was like, the players deserve it. Like, they deserve to be paid more than they're being paid. If I could pay them the same as the men's, from an economical point of view I would but I'm also a businessman I have to run a business I have to like set the bar somewhere and and you know kind of do the maths to work out what is more fair but also affordable for me to do the worry for me is that 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 those kind of principles go it just this ideological belief in uh women's football um and women football players being treated fairly and uh and equi- equitably and and really valued as a part of the team and pioneered on principle. Like, I worry that that will go and that they'll become a little bit more like a, say, a, a Chelsea or a Man City or a Barcelona, where there's a lot of talk about the one club mentality, but like under the surface, it's it's not quite as like ideologically committed to that, that, that kind, those kind of principles. So yeah, that's, that's the fear for me. Um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, who they sign in the summer because, you know, Ada Hagerberg has been there a long time. There's been rumours that she might leave. Um, if Katarina Macario goes to Chelsea, that's another like big uh, one for the future that they're sort of letting go. Whereas obviously Ada Hagerberg's been uh, a bit older and has been there a bit longer. So seeing what they what they do in the summer, which has generally been like signed sort of Galactico level players, um, at, like with Orlas gone is going to be really interesting because he's been the one who has been having those conversations and recruiting those players and making the promises and being able to promise Champions League uh, trophies, essentially, which they're not even in the final this season. So the conversations will switch a little bit and it's going to be interesting to see how that pans out for them and whether it starts to see them decline at all. Uh, Susie, thanks for coming on. Um, always nice to talk to you. Massive summer, of course. Women's World Cup. Uh, Guardian Women's Football Weekly is on every Tuesday. They will, of course, be covering it. We'll be covering it as well. Um, but uh, for the time being, thanks for coming on, Susie. Cheers for having me. Susie Rack there, Guardian Women's Football Correspondent. Just time for a little bit of AOB. Robbie says, how big of a fanboy of Messi is Max? In the pod yesterday, you were literally in denial. 
Messi was going to Saudi Arabia. You said he's at least aging better than Ronaldo. Messi's 35. At, at 35, Ronaldo won his second Serie A and was top scorer. At 36, he was golden boot. That's a fair point. I prefer Messi as a footballer. Don't love either of them as blokes. Hope that's okay. Um, uh, uh, Matthew says on the subject of people demanding we talk about their clubs it's getting out of hand now can I bully you all to talk about the USL's Pittsburgh Riverhounds sounds like a club that Barry has made up perhaps I haven't even checked if it's real what was yours what was it the Western Timberlakes or something Woodland Timberlakes <laughs> Woodland Timberlakes uh, they just beat the New England Revolution in the US Open Cup thanks looking forward to the segment uh, yeah, we'll add it to the in-tray, Matthew. Uh, Lawrence says, after Barry's unexpected cameo in the trailer for that Peter Crouch film, is this the start of a fledgling movie career? This was exciting, Barry, wasn't it? I watched the trailer. You don't see your face, but you do hear your velvety tones. Yeah, there's probably a good reason for that. I This is news to me. It's the first I've heard of it. So uh, could you elaborate? There's a Peter Crouch has got a film coming out about how uh, it's the story of Peter Crouch. Um, which you may know, yeah. he was quite a gangly chap who was quite good at football. Uh, I am familiar yeah. with his work, yes. I think as a youngster, he probably got a bit teased for being gangly. Turns out he was really good at football, had quite a good career. Um, has a, It seems like a nice bloke, has a nice wife and a nice family. But within it, uh, at some point, uh, it cuts to your voice over an image of him playing, scoring an overhead kick or something, saying he's turned into a national treasure. Did they record you surreptitiously? Did you did you get interviewed for this? No, no, I I got interviewed for it, and uh, luckily I I had done you know a lot of preparation for this interview, which I thought would take about ten minutes, and I basically got grilled for over two hours. Now wow. I'm guessing. I'm like guessing an FBI interrogation. I'm, I'm not joking. It was. It was. Um, yeah, intense. In, very intense. And I'm glad I had put the work in because otherwise I'd have been. It would have been a disaster. But my my worry is that my contribution will probably be limited to about a minute, and I'm terrified I'll get stitched up. That they'll only take out mildly critical things I said about Crouchy and use them to make me look like some sort of anti-Crouch heel. But I, I would like to state for the record, ahead of the release of this film, that I am a massive, massive Peter Crouch fan. Right. I mean, it sounds like you're sort of worried they're going to sort of try and get you in the narrative arc as the evil baddie. I'm not sure you'll play that pivotal a role is my is my hunch but look you never know oh no i i, I suspect um you know that's the thing they do with these films or documentaries they they will interview people for a long time and then use 20 seconds of what they filmed two hours seems like did you get to have a break like i you, did did you, did you did you have a lawyer present uh it, it was recorded you won't be surprised to hear this. It was recorded in my local pub, which <laughs> of course it was, which I borrowed um, for for a morning before it opened. And I think I think we met in the pub at half ten in the morning, and mm -hmm. then at half one or two o'clock there were regulars banging on the door wanting to get in to drink pints, and I was still there sweating under the lamp. How on earth do you know that much about Peter Crouch? Surely like half, like half an hour in, you must have been really struggling. That's um, well, I, I just did my homework, Max. I mean, I know quite a lot about Peter Crouch's career anyway, but um, 
Yeah, I just did my homework. Well, look, we're very proud of you, Barry, and thank you. Although, for the record, we didn't hear the last 15 seconds of that answer because you disappeared from the Zoom call, but I presume it was thoroughly entertaining. And if Mark, Nicky, and I didn't laugh hysterically at the end of the anecdote, it's because we didn't hear it. But we appreciated it all the same, and the listeners get to hear it, and they're arguably a more important part of this whole nonsense. But uh, that'll do. But Yeah, and to think we were criticising other broadcasters for their <laughs> amateurish productions. Yeah. Now you've been cut off at the end there, Baz. Producer Joel could actually just modify yeah. the end to put whatever he wants, which is exactly what you were worried about <laughs> happening on the documentary. I mean, it's it's all smoke and mirrors, Nikki. It's all smoke and mirrors. <laughs> anyway, that'll do for today. Uh, thank you, Mark. Thanks, Max. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks. Thanks, Barry. You're very welcome. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove with Arif Islam. Our executive producer is Daniel Stevens. We'll be back on Monday. This is The Guardian. Thank you.